I want to ask you guys a question. Do a little poll, okay? You guys ready for a poll? While I move this here, okay? A little poll. If I told you from, from the start of your life, okay, if you could rewind to the beginning of your life, and I told you, guaranteed, 78, 80, okay, just under 80, 78% of your life will be happy days, peaceful days, good days, okay? Okay? And only 18% of your life will be suffering and pain and, and, and cruelty and all and, and, and not so great things, right? How many of you would take that? You'll take that deal, okay, from the start. How many of you? 78% of your life will be good and peaceful and wonderful. How many of you would take that deal from the start? I see one hand. Yeah, I see, I, I see, I see some of you, right? Okay, some of you will be like, that's a good deal, right? That's a good deal. You give me only 51% or so, I take, right? Some of you are like, oh, you're 78, okay? Now, it's, it, I'm curious, right? I really was curious to see how many of you would raise your hands. Okay, I'll mark your hands, okay? Today, I want to share with you It'll, it'll come back later. The poll will come back later. Don't worry. Okay? I want to share with you a word. A word from Judges. And we are in the book of Judges. Okay? And we have been preparing ourselves, seeing the story develop on how the, how the, the nation, by now it's like a nation of Israel, have failed to take the territories that they were given. Not just failed to take territory, but they started worshipping the gods of the land and that vexed God so much. I think a couple of weeks, uh, you heard Pastor Isaac share the word on how, how, how to vex God, right? I was like, where did he get that from? Bridgerton season two. That's where he, get that, he got that from. Never mind. Never mind. Now, we have reached a point where Israel is going to enter cycles of oppression, crying out to God, delivered, peace, forgetting. Cycles of oppression, cry out to God, delivered, peace, forget. And we saw in the, in, in, the, um, in the overview weekend where Pastor Chu and Pastor Jeffrey both shared that cycle with all of us. Today, you're going to see the first two, 2.1, <laughs> first two judges, okay, and the cycle beginning. I've entitled today's sermon, Ehud, Ehud is the judge, uh, uh, who is the, the main character of who we are looking at. Ehud versus the heavyweight champion of the world. Or if they say in prize fighting, I don't know if I can do this properly, but in prize fighting, they would say Ehud versus the heavyweight champion of the world. And his name is Eglon, King Eglon, a really huge guy. Hence, heavyweight champion of the world. I'm going to read the text with you, okay? So, I'm going to keep pace. You can read it off the screen. And along the way, I'm going to pause. I'm going to make a few comments here and there, okay? Because, actually, this is my secret. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to bonkar my secret. There were too many points. I couldn't pick three. I, there was something like six or seven points. And so, I'm going to secretly hide my unused points into the little observations. If you're a geek, by the way, you like your Bible, you love it, and you want to like, you know, you, you, you like to kind of like see curious little details in here and there. I hope that that part of you is satisfied today. If you're a thinker and you like at least one difficult question to mull on so that you can walk out and you can still churn on it, and I'm not going to give you an answer, an easy answer for that, I hope to, to tickle, or not tickle, but to provoke you into some of that thinking as well. Let's get into it. Judges 3, 7 to 31. The Israelites did what was evil in Yahweh's sight. They forgot Yahweh their God and worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs. Yahweh's anger burned against Israel and he sold them to King Kushan Rishataim of Aram Naharaim. And the Israelites served him Eight years. Everybody say eight years. Is eight years long? Can you imagine serving a cruel king for eight years? Right? It's eight years long. How many of you think eight years is long? Just raise your hands. 
right? Eight years is two presidential terms in America. Uh, uh, eight years is one point something uh, 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 prime minister's terms in Malaysia, maybe less. These days, they come and go a bit short, but never mind. The Israelites cried out to Yahweh. So Yahweh raised up Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother. Pause there. This is quite helpful. Now, the actual Hebrew for brother, youngest brother, is a little bit ambiguous. So most scholars think it's youngest brother. If you do some of the calculations, it might turn out to be nephew. Okay, But regardless, this is a very helpful little detail because this connects judges to Joshua. This connects the leadership of Israel. The first judge takes on, follows on from Caleb. Caleb of Caleb and Joshua fame. So this is something to just check in your mind. Okay, Othniel after Caleb, Othniel. Right? Either younger brother or a nephew or maybe a cousin. I'm not sure. Okay? As the deliverer to save the Israelites. The spirit of Yahweh came upon, came on him and he judged Israel. Now, when you see these words, the spirit of God came on him. What do you think of? Shout out. Somebody shout out. What do you think of? Who, who here thinks of Joel chapter 2? Right? I will pour, upon, pour out my spirit on them. Right? And when I do that, their, their, their young men will see uh, 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 dreams, uh, young old men will see dreams, uh, young men will see visions. Right? Right? Some of you may think of Joel too. Right? Some of you may think of, of Jesus quoting Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. On me. Upon me. Why? He has anointed me to do what? Exactly what? Othniel is going to do. To what? Proclaim liberty to captives, to set the oppressed free, to preach good news to the poor. That was true then. That was true in Isaiah 61's time. It was true in Jesus' time. And it is still true now. So, it may have been less common to see the Spirit of the Lord fall upon someone, a man of God, so to speak, in the times of the Old Testament. A little quiz. How many of you can think of other instances in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit fell on someone? Uh, just shout out some answers. Who's Bazalel. Bazalel, the, the creative fine worker in the temple, right? The Spirit of God fell upon him. And Pastor Chu gets full marks because he's the first instance First instance where it says the Spirit of God fell on him. Moses and his 22 elders. Moses uh, 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 kind of like did a quasi kind of prophetic act and the Spirit of God fell onto the 22 elders. You will see it in this Judges series. In other Judges, most notably Samson. You will see it. Um, you will see it elsewhere throughout your Bible. Not least of all, you will see it, of course, harked huck, back by Jesus when he, with, his, with his inauguration speech, right? Citing Isaiah 61, Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Then you see it in Pentecost where the Holy Spirit falls upon the believers. And until today, now we are in a charismatic church. We believe in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon regular people like us. And we are people who believe that whatever happened then is still happening now. And the Spirit of the Lord, that same Spirit that falls on a man like Othniel to set captives free is falling upon every single one of us today and tomorrow and in the days to come to do the same thing. So when you read about Othniel, you can see Othniel, you can see Jesus, who is the perfect judge, the ultimate judge, the one whom all the judges in one poor form or an even poorer form are attempting to approximate. That's Jesus. And since Jesus, it's us. Also in one good, medium, not so good, some imperfect form, also approximating them with Jesus as the centerpiece. Can you see that? 
Can you see that? So if you want a picture, Jesus at the centre, Jesus always at the centre, and all the judges approximating Jesus, and us, the church today, also approximating Jesus. And our prayer is that Jesus will shape us, mould us, and we will be yielded and soft in His hand so that He can shape us to be Christ-like so that the approximation of Jesus becomes clearer and clearer so that we can really say the words in 1 Corinthians 13, Now I see but a poor reflection in a mirror. Then one day we shall see face to face, shining, carrying the glory of God. Amen? Amen? Back to Othniel, okay? Othniel went out to battle and Yahweh handed over King Kushan Rishataim of Aram to him so that Othniel overpowered him. Then the land had peace for 40 years and Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. The Israelites again did what was evil in Yahweh's sight. He gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel because they had done what was evil in Yahweh's sight. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites served King Eglon of Moab 18 years. City of Palms is likely to be Jericho. So I see some of your faces going like, oh, that's not good. Because I remember how they won over Jericho. That was good. And I didn't know they lost Jericho. It's not good. How many of you, when you realize that Israel lost Jericho, it's something, it does something to you like, like a bit bosong. How many of you, when, you, when you find out that Israel lost Jericho, you a bit bosong because the victory was so good, it tasted so sweet, it was such a triumph, and then to see it loose just like that, almost like a footnote, almost like a footnote in the history books. Wow. Don't like, man. There's something not right, some holy, uh, 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 some, some, some holy kind of desire. Imagine Jericho is one of your disciples, one of your leaders, one of your new believers, one of your converts in your cell group and you raise them up and, all, and then suddenly you lose them. You lose them like, not lose them, lose them. You lose them back to the world and then they, they, they totally become totally prodigal and they threw everything away but that victory, you remember that victory from last time. You're like, wow, so bittersweet. Remembering the, the day when we won that soul was so sweet. So good, such a victory, and to see it lost. And will you sit still? SIBKL, would you sit still? Will you go to bed early and just wake up late in the morning, or will you travail through the night? Will you pray? Will you rise up? Will you stand? Will you fight for this soul? Will you? Would you? SIBKL, I'm not convinced, Lord. Right? Pastor Chu only, yeah, and Pastor Lee Chu, right? SIBKL. Am I convinced? <laughs> it's still early. Let's go on. <laughs> okay, okay. Now, a little thing here. You see Ammonites, Amalekites, the last, the last slide I showed you, Aram. Sometimes, huh, when, the, when, when the Bible shows you all these foreign nations, it kind of like just combines them all. And you see, by the way, they are, they, they are combining forces here, right? And you just kind of like, oh, the Aramites, and then the Amalekites, and then the Ammonites. And we don't really know anything about them. I'm sure they are different nations. I'm sure they have different cultures. I'm sure they have different nuances. I'm sure they are unique in their own ways. And sometimes maybe when the, when the biblical narrative, because they are not the protagonists, right? They're just a byword. And so the way it's spoken might make us think that those who are not like us are all alike. But it's not true. It's not true. And I'm highlighting this because we don't live in this world. We live in Malaysia and we live in a multicultural community where there are many people outside our doors who are not like us. But they are not all alike. They are not all alike. And so I'm not 
so to speak, equating um, our, all of our, our diverse neighbours in our land to the Ammonites and the Malachites. But, I, but I, I see something, and I think it's good we see it too, that it's important when we go out and, and interface with our friends outside that we don't just think of all of them as, oh, non-Christian means one big glob of non-Christians, right? But we take the time to understand who they are, how they are, what they believe in, and in, a, in, in an attentive way to know them and to show them the hope we have in Jesus. Amen? Amen? That's one of my little diversions. Let's move on. Then the Israelites cried out to Yahweh and he raised up Ehud. Everybody say Ehud. Son of Jerah, a left-handed Benjaminite, as a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him with the tribute for King Eglon of Moab. Ehud made himself a double-edged sword. So this guy is a blacksmith as well. He's everything, right? Um, he made himself uh, um, a double-edged sword, 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes and he brought the tribute to King Eglon of Moab who was an extremely fat man. So, we are not fat-shaming nobody, but the Bible translation, this is the ESV, actually says an extremely fat man. Therefore, the heavyweight champion of the world, Eglon, right? When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who carried it. At the so, just to paint you the scene, Ehud has shown up before his new king, King Eglon, right? With a tribute. Right? And he's got an entourage. And after delivering the tribute, he actually tells his entourage, okay guys, we can go. Okay? So, when they're finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who carried it. And then as they were walking away, now we, we don't know exactly how far away they had travelled. It's not just like at the entrance, okay? They literally moved already. And then as at the calf images near Gilgal, he returned. So, the entourage has left. Ehud comes back alone and he says, King Aglon, I have a secret message for you. The king said, silence. And all his attendants caught the idea. They, they caught the drift. They all left. Okay? So, somehow when the king says silence, the only way to be silent, everybody leaves, right? So, they all left. Leaving only two people in that physical space. Eglon and Ehud. Then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his upstairs room where it was cool. Now, there's a lot of... Uh, Pastor Chiu will be like nodding uh, uh, because when I say this. There is so much speculation. It's like uh, about how the room was and, and how it is. Is it, is it a toilet? Is it a throne room? Is it a this? Was it actually cool? You know, if it's cool, why is it up there? If it's up there, isn't it nearer to the sun? All these kind of questions, right? About people trying to recreate the physical space. But for what we know, Eglon retreated to a part of his palace where it is private and there are doors that can be locked. He brought Ehud in. Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. The word message in Hebrew can also mean thing. So it can mean, I have a thing from God for you. You know what's that thing? An 18-inch sword right? That's the thing from God for you. I have a thing. I have a message from God for you. And the king stood up as if standing up to approach Ehud to hear the message better. Ehud reached with his left hand. Remember, he's left-handed. Reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, plunged it into Eglon's belly. Even the handle went in after the blade and Eglon's fat closed in over it. So it's kind of like, and then, so that Ehud is like, Wallah, cannot, like, dude, I can't do this. Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly. And the waist came out. 
there, I don't think there are other deaths in the Bible written with such detail, such, if I may say, comic detail, okay? This, this, this really is quite, like, like, he's taking a shot at Ehud, it's really, at Eglon, he's taking a real shot. By the way, Eglon's name uh, could also mean cattle. So it's almost like he is a sacrificial cow, right? Being slaughtered, you know, so, so there is that, that subtext going on, right? Ehud escaped by way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of the upstairs room behind him. In case you're thinking, how does he close and then lock from outside? Actually, their latch is not like our latch. Their latch got hole in the door and, and you put your hand through it, okay? And then you latch from outside or you can latch from inside, okay? So, so, so he, he latches the doors, he locks the doors and then he was gone. Ehud was gone when Eglon's servants came in. So Eglon's servants are standing at the threshold of the inside room. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought he was relieving himself in the cool room. Now, why would they suddenly think, now, that's not a toilet. It's not a toilet. There's no way his throne and his toilet are together. Sanitation, sanitation in those days, there's no way you would put your toilet right next to your throne, okay? Because you can't flush, right? So, the only way they could have suspected, I think he is relieving himself, they smelled it, remember? Boom, right? They smelled it, right? And the, <laughs> the servants waited. I love this story. Y'all can tell I love this story. Y'all love this story. The servants waited until they became Pisces. They're like, oh my gosh, why, why this guy? Why this guy? So long, right? <laughs> this is too much. And saw that he had still not opened the doors of the upstairs room. Ehud escaped. Sorry. Um, Ehud escaped. So while the servants were all waiting there, like, how, huh? how, huh? should we open the door? Should we leave it? He's relieving himself. We should leave him alone. While all that was happening, Ehud, already gone, right? He's passed the Jordan near the calf images and reached Seira. After he arrived, he sounded the ram's horn throughout the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites came down with him from the hill country and he became their leader. He told them, Follow me, because Yahweh has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. So they followed him, captured the forts of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. That is, cannot cross over the Jordan. At that time, they struck down 10,000 Moabites, all stout, able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped. Moab became subject to Israel that day, and the land had peace for 80 years. Yes. Wow. What a story. What that that story is called Ehud versus the heavyweight champion of the world. And since it's such a climax, such a the, the only way to follow up such an such a such, such a moment, such a big story is with a very small story. Okay? So so the author of Judges followed it up with the ultimate anti-climax story. After Ehud, Shamgar, son of Anath, became judge. He also delivered Israel, striking down 600 Philistines with a cattle prod. And that's it. That's all we know about Shamgar. Okay? In fact, I think many years ago, there was a BM conference right here in our hall, and one of the preachers uh, shared a whole sermon on Shamgar. That's next level, okay? I, I don't know how to do that. Don't plan to do that. Um, but I always like, wow, tabit, you know, you can preach a whole sermon on Shamgar. By the way, there is a BM conference happening downstairs tonight, right? Launch is tonight, Chosen Generation for the Nation Conference. And I just want to say, all of you guys here, when you finish, go downstairs, fourth floor, go check it out. Go check it out, right? And by the way, if I break into BM today, uh, it's because I'm just, I'm just greasing the gears, right? Um, all right, so I've told you the whole story. There are two things... I want you to think about that apply across, not just across today's sermon. I want to share these two things for you so that it applies across all the stories about judges. Okay, Ken? Ken? Two things specifically, two thoughts about the nature of time. Remember just now I asked you, right? If I offered you 78% of your whole life would be good days, peaceful days, only 18%, uh, only... I think I'm getting my math wrong. It's 22%, right? Uh, um, will be not so great days. Would you take it, all of you who raised your hand, yes, no, yes, no, just now? 
It looks like this if you say eight years under uh, um, uh, 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 the Aramites followed by how many years of peace? And then how many years under, it looks like this now, I show you. Eight years and then all the red is the oppression years. All the white are the peace years. This is, this is the deliverance on number eight. This is the deliverance of Othniel. On number 66 is the deliverance of Ehud. And then for good measure, just so that I'm working with more data, it's always more accurate with more data, I threw in Deborah's as well, right? So 166 is the deliverance of Deborah, which led to more, another 40 years. 40, 80, 40 years, right? That gives you a pie chart that looks like this. You literally have quite a lot of peace times. However, when the story is told, it doesn't quite feel like it. It feels like they're under oppression all the time. It feels like, like bad days for Israel, constantly, right? It feels like, wow, cannot tahan, bitahan, again and again and again. But actually, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think when you see this? I spend a lot of time thinking, what, what lesson am I supposed to, to derive from looking at this? I showed it to Pastor Isaac. He said, it means God is merciful. And I think that's one, one, one thing we can learn. God is merciful. That every time the, the oppression, when they cry out, He delivers, He gives them almost two times, three times, four times the peace as opposed to the oppression. And sometimes we don't see it. We don't see it and we take it for granted. And so this is one, this is one thing for us to remember. I, I have two thoughts when I see this. And, and this, is, this, this is my favourite filmmaker from when I was a film student. His name is Jean-Luc Godard, right? And he said, life is tragedy in close-up and comedy in long shot. Close-up versus zoom out, long shot, right? When you look at life in the minute by minute, hour by hour, and you feel the pain and you're, go you're, you're grieving with someone or, you're, or you're, you're helping someone go through a difficult patch, you're praying, you're interceding and all that. And it might feel, it might feel like, like what Godard says. It's tragedy in close-up. When you zoom all the way in, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of suffering. But actually, when you zoom all the way out, of course, it's not comedic in the ha-ha kind of way, but you get a different perspective when you zoom all the way out just like this. When you zoom all the way out, you get a different perspective. And so, I want you to know as you go through all the stories of the different judges, the Bible role models for us how to take a long view of time. We live in an instant generation. You post on Instagram 30 seconds later, you pick up your phone to see if anybody liked or not. And you put it down. Why you laugh? Because you did it, right? And then, and then, guess what? For the next half an hour, you pick up your phone, don't know how many times to see how, who liked you. Right? Look like your photo. And then you every day press that like and then scroll. Wow, this person also saw my post. This person liked my post. We live in an instant gratification culture. Our generation is a generation of the microwave and of the touchscreen. Our generation is a generation that doesn't know, needs extra help, needs a lot of extra reminding to take a long view of time. But it was never like that for the, for the folks in the time of Ehud or in the times of Jesus, that people knew that God worked across long spans of time. And maybe, and I learned this from my wife, maybe when Jesus says that if you ask this mountain to be thrown into the sea, some of the time you see instant miracles, but maybe many of the other times you see God eroding away at that mountain, chip by chip by chip by chip. And every day He's looking for faithful men and women like SIBKL here to chip and chip and chip away and erode mountains of oppression, mountains of, of, of injustice. And maybe some of these things feel so big, you could never make it hurl into the sea overnight. But guess what? 
God is role modeling to us to take a long view of time and have hope. Have hope because God is still at work and He who began a good work will bring it to completion. Amen? Amen? I want to show something else also about time. Remember this? Yahweh's anger burned against Israel. He sold them to King Kushan, Rishathaim, okay? And the Israelites, for eight years, remember the eight years? The Israelites cried out to Yahweh. So Yahweh raised up Othniel. Okay, I have a question for you now. Remember, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tease you guys today. When did the Israelites start crying out? At the start of the eight years? Somewhere in the middle of the eight years? Only at the end of the eight years, betahan really, then they start crying out. Served him eight years. The Israelites cried out. We actually don't know the time. So Yahweh raised up Othniel. When did Yahweh start raising up Othniel? At the start of the eight years? Only when they cry, only then God start raising him up? Or cry very long already, then God start raising him up? Same thing happening with Ehud. 18 years. Then the Israelites cried out to Yahweh and he raised up Ehud. When did he raise up Ehud? By the way, huh, if you, I, I read one commentator who did a lot of difficult math to try to place how old Ehud was, right? And the conclusion is possibly Ehud was about 40s and 50s when he was the judge, which means that minus 18 years, he was in his possibly 20s or early 30s when Moab started ruling over Israel. How long does it take for God to work and prepare? How many of you, you think about how old you were 18 years ago? Where were you? Were you even in KL? Were you in a different city? Were you in a different country? Were you in a different job? Were you still studying? Were you still in secondary school? I don't know what you were doing 18 years ago. 18 years ago for me, my goodness, right? I'm 42. Someone do the math. I can't even do the math. My brains are fried. What were you doing 18? And is it possible that God began a work in you 18 years ago? And He's going to bring all that work to a culmination over something that's going to happen in 2023. Is it possible? So, the lesson I want you to learn is God is sovereign over His use of time. Even when it appears slow to us because God does not work slow in the way we understand slowness. His work with time is perfect. But you and I, being doped up with instant gratification, touch screen and microwave, we expect God to be on demand, like video on demand. God is not like that. And sometimes he says, no, I want to teach you to work across long stretches of time and I'll prepare you for 20 years. I'll prepare you for 30 years for one thing. So what? One thing. And after that, someone else will take your place after 40, 50 years and they'll continue that work. It's like, really? God, you work like that? We are going to go into Judges series and we are going to see God really does work like that. He really does. And let us not try to impose our 21st century expectations about responsiveness to the God of all eternity. He is not beholden to us to answer just because we tap, He has to answer. Then we tap, tap, He has to answer twice. That is not God. That's an ATM machine, that's a vending machine, that's your touch screen, that's not God. So hang in there, church. If you're praying for a breakthrough, hang in there. Maybe your breakthrough will come when you are in your deathbed. Have hope. Why should that be a bad thing? It should be a good thing if your breakthrough comes at all in our lifetime. The, the Word of God says, I hope to see the goodness of God in the land of the living while you're still alive. If you can see the goodness of God, that's good, man. Let it not be that we pass and then the goodness of God comes after our lifetime. Let's have a long view of time. And be patient because God is patient and He is preparing us day by day for something in the future. Amen? Amen? Alright. Now for my three points, which are going to be quite succinct. Number one, remembrance determines power. Somebody say, remembrance. 
Remembrance determines power. God overturns handicaps. Say handicap. And thirdly, battle beyond the big kill. Somebody say the big kill. Now, let's start with remembrance determines power. They forgot Yahweh their God. Israel is prone to forgetting Yahweh their God. You're going to see this over and over. I'm not going to belabor the point. We today are prone to forgetting our God. And we see each other over and over again all the time as well. We are all prone to this. And when we forget Yahweh our God, we do evil in His sight. Because we are no longer walking according to what He desires. What is God's response? Or what is within the parameters of God's possible responses? I don't think He's formulaic. He doesn't have one response. But what's one of the possible responses He has? He sells them to the enemy. And my friends, that's quite frightening. That, if that does not frighten you, I'm going to like pause for effect and let it sink in. When we forget God, He can sell us to our enemies so that they have power over us. When I was preparing this sermon, these three words stood out most strong. Power over Israel. And like Jericho City of Psalms, a bosong came up in me. How can you? How dare you? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who has power over Israel? And then I realized, God is sovereign. He did it. And I start asking God questions. God, you would, you would give your people, hand them over to their enemies, who are actually your enemies, right? They're not just Israel's enemies. They're God. They're Yahweh's enemies. God will literally shift. Yes, He would. He has. He would again. And this is not brimstone and fire. I'm really this, if, if anything, this is a, 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 an early warning or a midway warning. If we forget God and we live as if He doesn't exist, if we forget God and life goes on with no fear of God, no regard of God, it is not outside His parameters to hand you over to an enemy of yours so that they can fulfill and push you to the point of coming back to Him. And I find that scary. But at the same time, I find that comforting to know that my God is, is going to love me so much, He will go through any extreme to bring me back. And it's quite extreme. I started to think, God, what happens if you hand Moab power over Israel and Moab actually treats Israel good? Did you think about that? Can you imagine if Moab treats Israel good? Do you think it will shame Israel into returning to God? Or do you think it will just give them more license? The fact is, Moab did not treat Israel good. And here's a little nugget as well. Moab has the power and the free will to treat Israel good or bad. They do. They chose to treat Israel bad. And in so doing, God fulfills what he wants to do. He shifts the power balance in order to draw his people home. But let's not forget, sometimes when God shifts the power balance, he hands you over to your own wicked desires. We know this from Romans chapter 1. What does Romans chapter 1 say? Claiming to be wise, they, meaning all of us outside of God's grace, became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, Therefore, God paradidomai, He gave them up in their lusts of their hearts and impurity and to the dishonouring of their bodies and so on and so forth. Friends, you ask for a king and God says, no, I'm your king. 
and you say, no, God, give me a king. I want to be like my neighbours. I want to be like all the people out there. I want to have a king march us out into wars. God says, no, 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 no. And you say, you start stomping your foot, right? You do that two-year-old tantrum thing. He says, fine, I paradidomai you to the lusts of your hearts, to the impurity, to the dishonouring of your nation, of your destiny, of your all these things. I hand you over to yourself. You go do what you want to do. Friends, that's the most scary part of this. The most scary part of this. Remembrance determines power. Do not forget. God can and will shift the power balance to make you remember that you and I have a covenant to keep. You and I have a covenant to honour. He never forgets. He always keeps covenant. And in Him, so can we keep covenant. But we must remember God. Second point is God overturns a handicap. Ehud, as we discovered, is a left-handed Benjaminite. By the way, there's a little curious thing. The actual word for left-handed is something to the effect of disabled in the right hand. Okay, so he is a left-handed. But Benjaminite also means right hand, okay? So, so, so there's a pun going on here. English readers cannot get the pun, okay? Now, he's left-handed. How many of you are left-handed here? How many of you are left-handed? Just raise your hand all the way up, all the way up, all the way up, so I can see up on the balcony at home. Okay, I can't see you, but okay, left-handed. How many of you were left-handed and someone forced you to use your right hand at some point in your life? Some uncle, some father, mother, your grandfather, grandmother, force you to use your right hand, right? Left-handedness has always been considered a disadvantage, even a dirty thing. If you come from cultures where you eat with your hands, being left-handed is not cool, man. It's like, I don't even want to think about it, right? And often, over history, the, you, will be, you will see lots of stories of people being corrected out of their left-handedness because left-handedness is considered uh, um, uh, something not right. I love, I, I love the idea of, of left-handedness. I, I, I spent years trying to train myself to brush my teeth with my left hand or open bottle caps with my left hand. I, I, I find ambidexterity to be a very, to be a very impressive thing. <laughs> I try. It's not very good for me, right? Um, Ehud was a left-handed. And because he's a left-handed, he's actually disadvantaged. I'll tell you why. If you're a swordsman, now, a little bit, little bit on swordsmanship history, not all swords where the hilt is even and symmetrical. Most swords, you hold the sword, the sword cover on the hilt will cover over the right-hand part. So if you hold the sword, it covers the majority of your hand. And then this part is open. If you're left-handed and you hold that sword, the rest of your hand is exposed and then your thumb is over-covered and the weight balance is not quite right. Here's another thing. If you're a left-handed, you may battle another person, okay? Now, there are advantages. You spend more time practicing against right-handed, but right-handed spend less time practicing against left-handed. So you do have some advantages. But if you're fighting in an army, left-handed soldier is no good because your left hand is supposed to guard the sh your shield. Your shield must guard the guy on your left. Everybody's shield guards you and the guy on the left. The shield guards the guy on the left. If you're left-handed and your sword is on your right and your shield is on the right, you're overguarded because you've got shield, shield, sword, sword. So they don't like, they, they don't take in soldiers who are left-handed or they retrain soldiers to be right-handed. So left-handed, you, you won't find training in the military. You won't find lots of opportunities. Uh, uh, um, for, so for, for Ehud to be left-handed, he has a handicap. But God turned his handicap into a boon. God turns his handicap into a, the, precisely the weapon needed. Why? Because Ehud, being left-handed, can strap his sword on his right thigh, on the inside, outside. I'm not sure where. And I can only imagine, it's not stated in the text, they pat him down on the left. No sword come in. And then I have a message from God for you. Left hand, sword, boom. Right? God turns the handicap into a weapon. My friends, what is your handicap? You may think your handicap has crippled you from being able to be useful in the kingdom of God. It hasn't. 
God put it there for a purpose. Moses had a handicap. He could not speak properly. He was not an orator. And maybe it was a good thing that Moses was not an orator. He depended on God for the words. Jesus had a handicap. You know, they cast slur on Jesus about the town he grew up in. Nazareth, what good can come from Nazareth? So he doesn't have good credentials. In fact, he has, his credentials were so, were so stained that, that in John chapter 8, chapter 9, you see his paternity being a paternity slur on him as well, right? Like, who is your father? We know our father. We don't know your father. And you can, you can hear the slur, right? He had his handicaps. But God turns the handicap into victory and weapon and power. Friend, what is the handicap that you've always thought you had? What do you think that I can't, I can't do, I can't be effective in God's kingdom? I can't because I've got this, I've got that, I've got a stutter, I've got a limb, I've got, I, I'm not educated, I'm not this, I'm not that, my England no good, my China no good, my BM no good. What's your handicap? God handicapped me once upon a time. I can tell you in my first 10 sermons ever preached, maybe one or two were in English. The rest were all in BM. And I, I, I like English. Okay, I, I, I like speaking. I like oratory. God handicapped me for two years, put me in KBM downstairs in the BM service and made me preach in a second language. I had to dust off my SPM BM, you know, and, 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 and relearn. And in so doing, he taught me, Fergus, that's your handicap, right? And I'm going to use this handicap. Put you in this place where you, are, you don't have your language skills, so you're going to trust me. Because if you don't trust me, you're stuffed. You're finished, man. You, you and your Form 5BM, hard base. And I had to learn to trust God. What will be yours? What's your story? God overturns God. Remember, remembrance brings power. God overturns handicaps and now battle beyond the big kill. Can I have the worship team on stage? You know, my friends, the story goes on that after Ehud kills Eglon, die already, huh? Sounds like win already, huh? Right? But actually, have they won? Not quite. You know, just now I promised you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provoke your thinking. I'm going to provoke your thinking now with just one thing. It's not quite connected to this. Connected, connected to this. Do you think what Ehud did was right? Is it moral for Ehud to do what he did? Is it ethical for Ehud to do what he did? Or maybe you say, do ethics even come into this? They are being oppressed. You do anything you can to kill the guy. You kill the guy. Unarmed. He killed a guy outside of war. He killed a guy unprovoked, so to speak. He came in as a Trojan horse, bringing a tribute. Sly, cunning, killed a guy. Is that right? Does the Bible say that kind of behaviour is right or wrong? I'm not sure, you know. I'm not sure. Now, I'm going to tell you this. Joab, commander of David's army, he killed two guys like that. He killed Amasa. Call him near. Come, let me kiss you. Pull his beard. Bam! Kill him. David chastised him, man. He did it again for Abner, the, his, his counterpart in Israel's side. Pull him in for a hug. Bam! Kill him. And he was cursed for that, huh? Joab never recovered from that, huh? It's undignified way to kill someone. And not just that, Ish-bosheth, one of the Israel kings, right? Son of Saul, right? Two guys from the other side trying to carry favour with David. Go and like kill Ish-bosheth in his sleep. Cut off his head. Brought it back to David. Say, hi, we killed your enemy. How you kill your enemy? We killed him in bed while he was sleeping. David said, I kill you, man. You kill people in such an undignified... No honour. You kill people like that, no honour. Unprovoked, sleeping. He cannot even defend himself. You kill him like that. Kill these two men. So, actually, you know what? I wrestled with this. God, 
Why are all these judges so mixed in their moral standing? We have just started. We haven't even reached the chaos of, 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 the, of the end of judges. But even from the beginning, their morality is already so ambiguous. I think that's a humanizing point. Let's not look into our Bibles and hope to see heroes. We're not in Sunday school anymore. Let's look into our Bibles and see complex, ambiguous, imperfect people all trying their level best with the little resources they have to approximate Jesus so that our hopes are not in Bible heroes. Our hopes are in Jesus. Because the more grey you see the judges are, the more clear and shining and bright and white is your Jesus. Let that be the way you see the whole book of Judges. Now, when they killed Eglon, he died. Did they already win? No. He had to pass through all these other places, sound the ram's horns, come down all the soldiers, follow me. Yahweh has handed over your enemies. Past tense. Yahweh has handed your enemies. They are no longer now fighting for victory. They are fighting from victory. This is cross language. This is crucifixion, resurrection language. Do you see it? If you didn't see it, you have to see it. Yahweh has handed. You have won. The battle is done. When God shows up in the battle, it's over. He has handed you victory. And it's so today as well. God has given us victory. There is a sense in which we do fight from a position of victory already won. Yes, and still they have to fight. I'm not done with the slides. If I can go back to the slides. They had to go and fought up. They had to go. Let's they had to do this. They had to go and fought up the, 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 the Jordan so that the Moabites from this side cannot cross over. Everything is happening here. They had to block up the river and they had to slay 10,000 more soldiers. All of them able-bodied soldiers. Who is going to do this? But they've won. They've already killed the guy. King David shot that stone, hit Goliath in the head, cut off the, the giant's head. Win Liao Law, right? Can go home, right? No. They pursued. King David in his day pursued the Philistines all the way. All the way. And slew them all, all the way into Gath. Slew them all. Same story happening here. They killed the big fat guy. And then what do you have to do after that? They still have to win the battle. There's more to fight. Push and battle beyond the big kill. The big kill is just emblematic. The first one goes bang. But after the horns have been cut off, you have to keep going on. You cannot rest on your laurels. A long time ago, Pastor Chu spoke to all of us among the leaders and said, we are going to Sabah and we are going to take the horns of Sabah Pulau Bangi because the horns represent the power we are in a season to remember East Malaysia right and then in 20 was it 19 we did Ranau and we felt such a breakthrough happening in Ranau the horns broken remember there was an earthquake and literally the part of the mountain broke. Remember that? We've cut off the enemy. You have slain, slain the guy. And then what? Sit back, enjoy the spoils? No! Keep going on. Don't stop. Keep going on. There are 10,000 more to slay. Keep going on. In your life, after your one big victory, are you going to sit back? Or are you going to push on? 
Are you going to just sit back, lay back, cool, we won already, now I can take my foot off the pedal? No! Chase them to Gath, kill everyone down. Battle beyond the big kill. Every single one, we're trained to love the big kill. Big kill! Yay! Last week was big kill for SIBKL. Of our, our brothers and sisters in LifeGen had their power conference. Big kill! We had missions weekend here. Big kill! Workplace at the river had a fantastic camp. Big kill! And today, they followed up that big camp with baptism. Nine people baptized and I was there to witness it. And I can see what Pastor Sam Kyung is doing. They've had the big kill and they're chasing the 10,000. They're still chasing, still pursuing. Every single one of us do not rest on any laurel. When the big kill has happened, battle past it and keep going on. You want to strike the ground once? You want to strike the ground three times? Or you want to keep striking the ground and strike and strike and strike and strike over and over again. Church, that's our DNA. That's SIBKL DNA. In case you didn't realize, our DNA is to strike the ground many, 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 many times. So church, we're going to close. I really believe that God will deliver the victory, whether it's in your private life, your family life, a sickness happening in you. Remember, long view of time. Whether it's something happening in your workplace, a financial situation, or whether it's something happening in your cell group, in your ministry, in our church community, as a family, the destiny for this church, the destiny for this nation, whether parliament will booba, won't booba, whatever. I believe God is taking us somewhere. And if you see kills, battle past them, battle through them, all the way. Chase them all the way to Gath. Chase them all the 10,000 all the way to the end. Let us rise right now. I'm going to invite you all to rise and in a moment we are going to worship but I want every single one of you, if you are in a place where you are crying out to God for victory because in front of you is some demonic heavyweight champion of the world but you have the better power. You have the bigger, better holier, more powerful, more fully sovereign authority of the living God. I want you, if you want to call out to God to deliver the knockout punch to whatever, to whatever power of darkness that stands before you, I want you to raise your hand. Since we're all standing, I want you to raise your hand. Raise it even in front of you, just for yourself to see good enough ready. Just raise it in front of you. And as we worship, power of the living God upon every single one of you. Why don't we, why don't we worship? Why don't we? Holy Father, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, God of Othniel, God of Ehud, God of Shamgar, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we call upon you on this day, fall upon this place, fall upon this place, Lord God, and grant us victory. Victory over every, every would-be oppressor, every power of darkness. Fall upon this place, Lord God. Fall upon and grant us victory over sickness, over every disease, over every oppression, over every injustice, over every, over every financial trouble, over every mental sickness. Lord Jesus, fall, Holy Spirit, fall upon this place, Lord. We cry out to you, O God. Fall upon this place, O Lord God. Your promises never fail, Lord God. O Allah Bapa, Allah Bapa, kami, kami seru kepada mu Tuhan. Demi negara kami, I'm going to pray in BM now for our nation. Allah Bapa, kami doa untuk negara Malaysia kami. Tuhan kami doa. Agar kau akan curahkan kasihmu, curahkan kebaikanmu, curahkan ledakan kuasa roh kudus atas negara Malaysia. Dan berikan kepada kami bumi Malaysia ini kemenangan, 
breakthrough ledakan kuasa roh kudus atas negara Malaysia dan berikan kepada kami victory over the enemy kemenangan atas kemenangan atas setiap kuasa gelap oh father we just pray lord god for our nation that your victory your victory sometimes come lord god in fact often comes in ways we would never imagine we look to caesars and approximations of caesars we look to military powers we look to the powers and principalities of this world and we hope that deliverance will come from them but god sends us a left-handed handicapped man to bring victory church god sent us a humble son of a carpenter born into a foot trough as it were raised up in a town of no repute to overturn the powers and principalities of this world that's our god and in that god we shall find our hope in that god we will find our victory but look to god and his ways don't look to the world and its ways for if you love the world and the things of the world the love of the father cannot be in you lord may you bless us may you keep us may you turn your face to shine upon us and be gracious Amen. Amen. Amen, church. Amen.